Well, good morning. Let me give just a brief a bit of introduction to myself. My name is John Culver. And to clear up any confusion, I have nothing to do with Culver's restaurants, especially the one that just moved into Sugar Grove, sadly. Although I mentioned to someone this morning that every time I go in, though, I show my driver's license and I ask if I can get anything free. And it has happened. I've gotten shirts and soccer balls and free food <laughs> items. Uh, my favorite was one time going through the drive-thru. I was getting a gift card for my in-laws who like Culver's as well. I handed over my credit card and I saw them in the back kind of snickering and looking at it. And they came back and they said, are, are you one of the Culver's? And I said, well, I am, but not one of those Culver's. She said, well, still, uh, my manager would like to give you a free Sunday. I said, well, I'm not going to refuse that. And so uh, I'm thankful for that. We enjoy that. Uh, I spent some time in Wisconsin where Culver's originated from. So we're as close as you can get to being a part of Culver's without actually being with Culver's as well. But I am a Culver. I'm married to one wife, fortunately, and I have six children. And they weren't able to be with me here today because we are a part of the Sugar Grove campus right now. And so they're involved. My wife was serving in the nursery and had some other responsibilities there today. Uh, but I'm delighted to be here. My background is I have been in ministry I've been a pastor on staff at a number of different churches in different states. Uh, currently, in this last year, we've been a part of the Sugar Grove campus. Uh, we have been on staff at a church here in the area. We just sense God had something else for us. And we've been in a series of kind of a journey of waiting on him. That's a whole other story that I won't get into today much. Uh, but appreciate your prayers that we continue to seek what he has for us. We're living out our faith journey in kind of a, a real-life way. And seeing God bless and grow us and determine our steps as we, as we go along that way. We're doing a few different things on the side, doing some speaking and some training, uh, working with folks uh, that need to provide care for elderly loved ones, and just experiencing some, some real challenges and joys in that process. And uh, for those of you that have taken time to wait on the Lord in any particular area, especially as it rates, relates maybe to your occupation, your income, remember I, I do have six children. Uh, I often say that I have not necessarily equal, but I have parts panic and parts peace in that process, and, and I really believe that, Sometime at the same, sometimes at the same time. Peace in who God is and what he's doing, and a panic from a human perspective of, what have I done, and what am I doing? And yet God has just grown us, grown my marriage, uh, grown my relationship with my children, grown my relationship with the Lord, and those are things that, that you know, money don't buy, and I'm thankful for that. So it also allows me the opportunity to, to be here today and to have opportunities to speak at some other churches, and, and it's an honor to be here. My wife and I, my family, we live in Big Rock, so we're not too far away, one of the towns along the way here from Sugar Grove, and uh, when I found out a little while ago I'd had the chance to be here, uh, just really, really thankful uh, for, the, for the privilege of being here. So let me start our time with a word of prayer. God, I, I, it's with that heart that I come before you humbly. Really grateful to be able to open your word today. I, I don't take that lightly. Um, I know that anytime your word is opened, or as we heard that, broken apart, uh, like your body was, God, it's a big deal. And so we, uh, we pray that we would hear from you today. I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for their faithfulness to each other, to this community, faithfulness to you. And as we open your word, would it be your words that come through? God, we're going to hear some serious stuff today, some serious challenges some real encouragement, and I pray that it's your Holy Spirit that fills us, because we know there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves more faithful, more godly, to make us, us good in any way. It's completely the work of you, uh, through your cross, through your grace, through your salvation, that provides us anything, uh, any goodness at all, and we revel in that today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm finding it harder and harder to discern what is true in this world today. To be able to separate fact 
from fiction to be able to know what's true, what's real, and what's fake. I don't think you have to look any further than the explosion of what's now being called fake news. Have you heard of that? A little while ago, I mean, it's only been a few months really since our last election that this kind of came to the forefront, but this term of fake news. Now, when I first heard that, I thought it was an oxymoron. How can news be fake? N news is news, right? You report the facts. Now, I realize if you're watching CNN or Fox News, there might be a bias or an agenda to how that news is reported. But at the end of the day, we've come to believe or trust that if I'm hearing the news, I'm getting the facts. And yet you're realizing, like me, that isn't necessarily true anymore, is it? We're starting to get stories that are exploding that we're hearing that are on reputable stations and news outlets, magazines, and newspapers that aren't even true or just have enough truth to pull you in, but when you get to it, uh, they, you find that the facts are missing as well. I was looking up some of these stories. My favorite one from this kind of fake news explosion, and a lot of people are blaming Trump for this, but this has nothing, or this isn't only to do with Trump. This is kind of something that has been, has been percolating in our society and our culture for a while. My favorite one, though, was at the time when Trump had been elected to president, there were lots of, of news stories, and, and let's be honest, some of that was Trump's fault. He would make some audacious claims about things as well that were far from the truth, and so having to separate Hillary, too. I mean, politicians are really good at this, aren't they? But my favorite one came from, from that time when he had nominated someone to be uh, Secretary of Treasury. And this particular person in the nomination, a story came out that kind of spread around. Hundreds of thousands of people saw it. And it was that this guy's company that he had been a part of, his financial institution, had foreclosed on a sweet old little woman because she had been 27 cents delinquent in a payment of her, of her home on her mortgage. People were reading this just aghast, going, oh, this can't possibly be true, right? Are you serious? How could he do this? And, and nonetheless, someone who's being nominated to be in this position, and it, it made for a great story. The problem was... It wasn't true. Not only was it not his financial institution, this particular person and nominee, it didn't actually happen. They were saying that this woman had made a payment of $300, but she owed $327. And after several you know, reports of it coming that she didn't pay, they foreclosed in her house. Well, by then it had been read by hundreds of thousands of people, assuming it to be true, and they assumed that this person lacked integrity, right? But it wasn't true. When they retracted, I think a handful of people saw that. By then it was too late, right? That's the, that's the beauty or the curse of fake news as it goes out. So I'm hearing about some of these things. I'm thinking of the newspaper, the, the Onion. Are you familiar with that publication? Started up in Wisconsin as well. It's satire. They actually, over the top, make these stories that you know they're not true, but they have enough truth in them that you're drawn in. And I think that we've come to a place in our society that, that that's normative now. It is hard to separate as you th see things by what's the real thing and what's the fake thing? We know this from a, a material possession standpoint. There's all kinds of people out there counterfeiting money, right? Or trying to art, art, art artifacts or faking themselves on Craigslist or their credentials or other things where this has become very normal and it's become very confusing. But, but it's not only in a fake news world where we would like to think better. It's all over social media, right? The rise of social media, Facebook, of Instagram, of, of tweeting, right? It's all over the place. We can throw out these bombs, right? Just kind of throw them out there. They're kind of true, maybe not. Maybe part of it is true, and it explodes. We see it on Facebook all the time with people who want to present themselves as looking one way in order to maybe make themselves look more benevolent, maybe more generous, maybe to have other people look at them better than they are. Right? That's the thing with Facebook, right? You can throw anything up there, but it may not be the real you. I can throw up a picture of my family all sitting on a stoop smiling around pumpkins. 
But what I won't share is that earlier we were smashing pumpkins at each other, right? Throwing them, making fun of each other. It reminds me back when I was younger, my mom might be in one of her animated stages, and we would be having a discussion or a conversation or an argument, and there would be loud words, and what would happen? This is back before cell phones. The phone would ring, right? Mom would pick up the phone, and I'll say, hello, this is Carolyn. Who am I speaking to, right? And I've been there, too, right? We are good at going from what's real to what's fake. It's hit me again, just again, this, this idea of, I read a story just recently. Did you hear the story of these, these boaters, these two women off the coast of Hawaii? Out at sea for five months, came and rescued. Unbelievable story. But if you've been reading, you know what's been happening. The story's starting to not add up again. There's pieces of it. 30-foot tiger sharks, when that's much larger than sharks normally are. Weather that they were experiencing, that the meteorologists are saying, wait a minute, that doesn't add up. Or, it didn't sound off kind of the warning beacons and you know, emergency stuff and all of these things. Now, I don't know what's true or false, but all of a sudden it's hard to determine what's going on. And I could go on and on and on, but it, I'm a little disenfranchised by this. But what I realize, too, though, is it's not just in the news. It's not just with people we don't know. It's just not, not on those people's Facebook accounts. It's in my life, too. And it's those around me as well. We have a world full of self-centered, attention-grabbing hypocrites, don't we? People who are wanting to look better than they are. They want to appear one way, but in reality, they are something very different. And unfortunately, the church... This church here, even today, the church as a whole, is not exempt from having a difficult time looking inside, going, what's true, what's real, what's fact, and what's fake, what's fiction, and what's false. Sometimes it can be very difficult to even tell the difference amongst those of us that know better, that have faith, that know who Jesus is, that have been freed by the gospel. And that's where I want to go today because the reality is, is that God takes faking very seriously. He has strong words for it all through scripture. Um, he, is, he is very resolute, very passionate, and very specific on how he handles those who choose to be posers rather than those who choose to be genuine. If you take your Bibles, we're in a study called Unfinished in the book of Acts. And I've really appreciated this study. Acts is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I love studying in narrative form how God in the early church is going along, making a difference where, where these early believers, and remembering these are believers that, that didn't have church growth conferences. They didn't have the self-help books. They didn't know what to do. They were making it up essentially as they went, relying on prayer and the Holy Spirit. Kind of a novel concept now, right? Prayer and the Holy Spirit. I, I find myself in ministry now. I'm quick to go, all right, let me go Google this. What's going on? What's happening? Who's doing what? What pastor has preached this and done that? What ministry? What church? I got to go find out what's, what the real thing is, what's working. And at the most basic level, we see an example here in our passage today. The real thing is real simple. I'm not saying it's, it's, it's easy, but it's simple in terms of being able to, our dependency upon the Lord, to understand that we are, we are, we are bound by prayer and we are motivated by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so as we come to this passage today, you'll see in your outlines today, it says that we're in, we're in Acts 4, verses uh, 1 through 22. I think that's what Phil did last week. I think that was just a typo. Uh, initially, initially, they asked if I would come and re-preach it because Phil didn't do an adequate job. But I said, you know, I, I heard he did okay. And now we're, we're in the end of chapter 4. We're going to do the last few verses of chapter 4. And then we're going to pick up at the beginning of chapter 5. And this is powerful. Let me, let me just give you a warning today. This is not easy. 
This is not just a feel-good message today and feel-good passages. There are some real encouragement. We see some of the best of the early church in this passage, and we see some of the worst in one of the church members. And there's plenty to convict us today, to challenge us, and to encourage us, which I believe is our approach to Scripture every time. We come to the, to the Word of God, whether in our study or in the preaching of it, and we walk away unchanged, then there's something wrong with us. There's something wrong with our ability to tap into the Holy Spirit and to be changed. The Holy God, the Holy, a Holy God through Holy Scriptures is in the business of changing lives. And my desire today is to try to keep the outline real simple, if you'll see. It's just as simple, I hope, as, as one, two, three. We're going to take one look at, at or a one snapshot of a transformed church. We're going to look at two members who responded in very contrasting ways, contrasting uh, responses uh, as church members. And then thirdly, we're going to look at three takeaways for the church today for us. So we're going to look at, at the context, what we're experiencing, what was going on in the early church, some responses of some members in that church, and then what does God have for us today? Us sitting in these chairs here in Shabana, Illinois, and the surrounding areas, how does he want us to be different and be changed? So if you'll take your Bibles, I want to start in Acts chapter 4, is we have a snapshot of a transformed church. Now, before I read these verses, let me just review real quick from last week. I wasn't here, but I know that the passage talks about that the early church was experiencing some persecution, right? The spread of the gospel, their numbers were growing, they're experiencing some persecution. The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they don't like this, they're not for this, they don't want the gospel to be propagated in this way. And so as the early church is gathering, trying to figure out what they're going to do, they start to pray, and their appeal to God is a prayer for, anybody remember for last week? Boldness. Awesome. All right? A prayer for boldness. Now, i got to be honest with you. I look at that, and I think if I put myself in their shoes, my first inclination in that moment is not a prayer for boldness. My prayer is for safety. My prayer is for protection. My prayer is for comfort. If I lay my heart out for you even today, most of my prayers end up being consumed with God make me better, fix me, heal me, help me, help me, you know, don't, don't hurt me, protect me, guide those around me, all appropriate prayers, but I think at times we miss the heart of what God wants. He wants us to pray for more of him, for more boldness, for him to say, I've got you. So I've talked to some who are in countries and places serving in missionaries and remote areas where, where the gospel, man, it's, it's, it's tough, tough soil. Um, they say that, you know, we say, well, how, what do you pray for? I mean, are, you, are you concerned for your safety? Often the response is, uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's that peace, but we, we spend a lot more time praying for our boldness, praying that the gospel would advance less about our safety. But I find that I often pray for them, for their safety, for my children, for the people I love. I'm very consumed with my comfort. And so as we approach this passage today and we see a snapshot of this transformed church, uh, let's, be, let's be impressed and appropriately encouraged by their focus not being on their own personal safety, but rather to be bold. And, and here's the beauty. God answers their prayer. And we're going to see how he answers their prayer today for boldness. So chapter 4, let me begin. I'm going to break it, the passage that we're in. We're going to finish chapter 4, first 11 verses of chapter 5, split it into three different chunks that I'll read and then kind of explain before we get to our takeaways today. Chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, 
sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Wow. When I read that passage, and I'm taking some time to kind of meditate this on, on this passage a little bit more than you have so far, I am blown away by what we see here. What we see here is a snapshot of a community of those whose hearts have been transformed by believing in Jesus. They are now freely sharing their possessions, selling homes, selling land, giving to others, not holding tightly onto their stuff, but freely sharing what is theirs. Uh, they are not interested, or their primary interest is not in their money, their wealth, their land, and their possessions. Their, their primary interest is not in the praise of others and what others think, and how do I elevate myself so that others will think better of me? Their focus is on a key word, sharing. Their desire, their boldness that they have prayed for, the boldness they have given, has given them a heart to be sharers to each other, both an internal and an external way. They wanted to have an ex external witness and internal care for one another. And so we see here that Luke describes now the radically freeing effect of true faith in Jesus Christ. You'll see my title today was Faith Freed or Faith Faker. We're going to see through two members their responses, but, but, the, but our challenge today is am I freed by my faith in Jesus Christ, my genuine faith in Jesus Christ, to be, to be less concerned about my money, my wealth, my stuff, and what others think? Or am I a faith faker? Pretending to be one thing, acting like I care about Jesus and I, I buy into what he's done and I'm, I'm all in, but holding tightly onto my stuff. But you need to see it's, it's more than just the simplistic maybe definitions of generosity and greed. Uh, that's at the heart of the story for sure and that's an application. But generosity is a condition of the heart, not just an amount of money. You can have lots of money and even give lots of money away and not be a generous person. You can have very little and still give and be greedy. It's a condition of the heart that we're looking at. It's an understanding of my faith in Jesus and whether or not I have been freed by that faith or I am still in bondage and enslaved and have become a faker. That I am more interested in appearing godly than I am in actually being godly. Because being a Christian means being changed from the inside out so that you're loving people more than you're loving your stuff. You're loving people more than you're concerned about the praise of others or how you are viewed in your circle, in your culture, in your town, in your work, even in your church. True generosity is a result of freedom and love, not duty and obligation. So we see their ability to share. And four things that we see briefly here, you see point one in your, in your outline, one snapshot of a transformed church. Their prayers answered, they first they shared the same goal. This was a community of believers. Again, remember, this is the early church. In chapter five, we're going to see the term ecclesia, church, is introduced for the very first time in Acts. This church was just forming. They were just becoming a body. What we know now is the church with all of our stuff, our announcements, our services, our worship, our care for the community, our Thanksgiving dinners, all wonderful things. This was all just kind of kind of new to them. Gathering of, of Jewish believers and Gentile believers together, they were experiencing some radical transformation in their lives. They were seeing things. Remember, chapter 4 ends with them being in a place where the house is shaken, Right? Okay, so I, I, I do kind of understand why they now are all in this together. Like, they were motivated because they have experienced something dramatic and definitive. They shared the same goal. These verses say that they shared the same heart and soul. 
The full number of them, it says the full number of the believers, those who were genuine believers, shared the same heart and soul. And I, you know, to stick with my, my alliteration today, I use the word goal, but it's, it's deeper than that, right? This idea comes from the Greek word for friendship, like full friendship, and the Old Testament understanding of the word for loyalty, complete loyalty. So these, these individuals, this early church, had total friendship and total loyalty. Can you imagine a church that was so in love with each other and the Lord that their friendship was so deep, their commitment to one another, that it manifested itself in total, total loyalty, which led to unity. The idea really is almost of like one heart in, or one soul in two bodies. You have that sometimes with somebody, maybe it's a spouse or a friend, where you feel like we are like in one, we are like one together, right? We're on the same page, we're so united, that's what they were experiencing, a oneness. And as a result, they had no ownership, they had everything in common, they didn't look at their stuff as their own, it was shared. You gotta be honest, that's it's fairly anti-American, right? Fairly, very, very anti-individualistic, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a moment, but I want us to see they had the same goal. Secondly, they shared the gospel. Verse 33, the first part, uh, says that they shared with great power the testimony of the resurrection. Not only did they share the same goal, that was a result, again, of them praying for boldness and the Lord answering that, it says that they shared the gospel. And not just the apostles, they shared with great power the people. And that, that word power, I think, is really interesting because it was less about miracles and, and, you know, big supernatural stuff. That word goes to that they wanted to share with conviction and with effectiveness. Their desire was to be a people in a church that when they talked about Jesus and the risen Savior and his resurrection and his conquering of death, that that would compel people to have to make a choice. Am I in or am I out? Nowadays, I find myself sitting on the plane or talking to somebody. I'm, I'm kind of I'm careful about how I nuance the gospel, right? I don't want to offend anybody. I want to be real, real subtle, kind of ask some questions. Oh, yeah, I've been a, I was a pastor before, and see if they'll take the bait, and they'll talk about that. Back then, the power of the gospel that they shared with you know, was, in their, was in their face, not in, a, not in a mean way, beating them over the head with, you know, with, with the Torah at that time, but rather in a way that said this Jesus has changed my life, radically impacted, and you have the same opportunity. So they shared the same goal. They shared the same gospel. They shared the gospel. They shared also in receiving grace. It says as they were sharing the power of the gospel, they were also receiving the power of grace. My goodness, when you start to experience the love of Jesus and you start to experience his grace being poured out on you, that's transformative. And this early church was experiencing that. The idea here of grace is God's sustaining favor. They were, they, were, they were experiencing the favor of God. That's why they could be so bold. Uh, that's why they could pray with such conviction. That's why they could believe that their stuff wasn't just theirs and that they could have the same heart and soul and mind because they were experiencing grace. This grace caused them to boldly witness and then to proactively care for the needs of those around them. And then finally, this leads to the fact that they shared their goods. Not only did they share the same goal, share the gospel, they shared in receiving God's grace, but they also shared their goods. And I think this is the one that we often kind of look at and like, wow, we're most impressed that they were like literally selling stuff, homes and land and, and giving that to those who had need. But we can't miss that it was because they had prayed that God would give them boldness. 
and the boldness he gave them gave them the same heart and soul. It gave them a desire to share the gospel with great power and conviction. They were receiving the grace of God. Oh, my goodness, how much I long to receive the grace of God. And that was then his favor was giving them great boldness to share that gospel and then to care for one another. Then, then the actual sharing of their goods, that was just kind of a, an, an afterthought, to, in my opinion. That was just kind of what, what came. It was a natural next step is when I start to believe that my genuine faith in Jesus has freed me and given me a future and a hope, then I'm no longer concerned about what others think about me and making sure that they think well of me. I'm no longer concerned about my stuff being my own stuff and making sure nobody hurts it or abuses it. I get caught up into something that's so much bigger than myself. I start being a part of a community that's about sharing my life with one another, not only just my stuff. But we do see that they shared their stuff too. We can't miss that. They shared their goods. And periodically the scriptures say, and we see that they began to sell items, people that had wealth. Again, this is, this is not communal living. I, I, right, this is not coercive communism right here, okay? I think right away we read some of these passages and go, okay, that may have worked then, but that's not going to work. Now, that's not how it is now. You're right, it's not. And I'm not, I don't believe this is prescriptive in terms of, of this is exactly how it has to be. We need to, we need to hear the heart of what's going on and what they're experiencing. But I do believe that we need to be a body of believers that has the goal of sharing. Sharing our hearts, our lives, our gospel, God's grace, and our goods with one another. Because what we see here is some had wealth. They didn't pull all their money together, sell everything at one time, have a big pot, and created a welfare system. No, there were legit needs, special needs. There were transplanted Gentiles and Jews in their area that needed help, that had come there. There were true economic issues in that day, and there were people that had needs. It, it, I don't know, it kind of sounds like our world today, doesn't it? Legit needs, but we often step, well, there must be more to the story. They must not have worked hard enough. They must have done something wrong or they wouldn't be in this position, right? How quick we are to go to that. And in that culture, they were freely giving because they had been freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, shared the same goal, shared the gospel, shared in receiving grace, and shared the good news. This is, again, a call to interdependence and generosity. Not a call to some kind of obligation, duty, do this and you'll get this. Oh, fine, I'll fork over my, my land because that's what everybody else is doing and that's what I have to do. No, they were caught up into something so much bigger than themselves. As they saw how freeing it is to live when you're not tied, when you're not married to, when you're not focused on yourself and your own position and your own stuff, but rather you're freed by genuine faith in Jesus Christ. So... One of my questions for us today from Elmhart is, does our church look like that? Does village look like that? Just this, this campus, village as a whole, and not just village, but the church as a whole? I know sadly it doesn't. In many ways it can. I know that's the heart's desire of village and in each of our campuses is to be a place that shares our lives, our hearts, our souls, that shepherds one another, that lives out of authenticity. May God help us in that pursuit. So that's a snapshot as, as we come, come to the end of chapter 4, a snapshot of a church that had been transformed and some of the characteristics that, that helped it be that way. Now let's move on to look at two members, two church members that had contrasting responses to that. And here's why it's important, why the, the context of what we just shared is, is so critical. It's so important because we have to understand that the two church members that we're going to look at now briefly came from that same church. 
Same church. They're seeing the same stuff. They're experiencing the same, you know, uh, transformation. And, and one responds very positively and one responds negatively. But they came from the same church. How, how true that can be even in our, our culture today. We can sit in the same family, in the same church, in the same row at church and respond very differently in the outworking of our faith. So let's look at example number one. We find in the end of chapter four, starting in verse 30, what do I have here, 36? Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So after we're just hearing about how the church as a whole is operating in this transformed, revolutionized, radical way, we get almost like a little footnote Luke gives us, Luke gives us here about this guy named Joseph who was familiar enough with the apostles that they had nicknamed him Barnabas. I, I really like Joseph, and I really like to be like him, or Barnabas, because, because I'm, I'm enamored by, by, by what, we don't, what we don't even get here in, in this patch as well. We get a really brief introduction to Barnabas here. We know enough to know that he's from the, the tribe of, of Levite. He was priestly tribe. We know he's from Cyprus. If you know your geography at all, Cyprus is about, about 250 miles, a little island northwest of where Israel, Jerusalem, would have been. And we know at that time in the first century that there were Jews from Cyprus that were in Jerusalem and, and there. There was a decent number of Jews in Cyprus as well. And some had made their way over. Barnabas is one of these. Who's now experiencing the gospel, hearing the stories. I don't know where he was or what he experienced up to this point. We don't get a lot of info, information on him. Now later in Acts, as you're going to see in, in following uh, chapters as well. Luke's going to tell us more. He's going to tell us that we're going to meet him. He becomes an advocate of the new convert, Paul, used to be Saul in chapter 9. We're going to find out he was a shepherd of the new Gentile converts in Antioch. He was the one trusted with relief for the poor, one of the early deacons. And he was a partner of Paul on his first missionary journeys and an advocate for giving John Mark a second chance when, when even Paul wanted to say, hey, I, I'm done. It's time to move on. So he becomes a pretty influential leader in the church, but for now, all we know is he was a man that had at least one field that was big enough to grow crops. And in a moment of, of seeing the needs around him and watching this transformed church, his heart had been freed from holding on tightly to his stuff. He goes and sells one of these lands. Maybe he had more, maybe that was his only one, and lays his money at the apostles' feet. Short little, little sentences that pack a lot of punch, don't they? He believed that the gospel was bigger than his stuff, bigger than his own security, and he was willing to share that because he was sharing in the power of the gospel and the receiving of God's grace. I find it interesting that the, that the apostles have a nickname for him, don't they? They call him Barnabas, and it means the son of encouragement. Wouldn't you love to be known as a son of encouragement? You know, there's a lot of things in Scripture and a lot of examples that I think, man, I am so glad I am not that person, right? For all of history, I am listed in the Bible as a adulterer, you know, as a deceiver, as a murderer, you know. For all of history, I'll look and go, oh, can you believe, you know, what King David did? You believe what that guy did? Remember Achan's sin? You remember this person and that person? Oh, Joseph's brothers, right? You get, you get kind of typecast in that way. How wonderful for a guy like Barnabas, right? Humble man of encouragement. I, I used to serve on staff with a guy that, that is exactly who he was. He had the gift of encouragement. No matter where you were, what you were doing, this guy could make, make something good out of nothing. He was, I, honestly, was irritating at times, right? For those of us who are not that way all the time, it would get kind of annoying. 
But as you're more around him, the more it was genuine. It wasn't fake. It wasn't put on. It's who he was. That's who Barnabas is. He's one of these church members experiencing what God is doing. He's caught up in a good way, in the best way. Not emotionally. He's caught up into this. And so the word I use for him, faith freed. Faith freed. I don't don't think that's a real term. I'm just making it up. Faith freed. The idea he was freed by his faith so that his position in the church and in society and culture, what others thought of him, that didn't matter. His stuff wasn't nearly as important as his love for Jesus and his love for the gospel. And we'll see later. He leads by example, and God uses him to make a significant impact on the early church. And I find that that, that, that in and of itself is pretty remarkable because I think we have to remember that leaders must lead in this way. Barnabas was a leader. Not full-fledged at that point, but Barnabas was led by example. And we that lead in the church have a responsibility to lead in these ways. We should be the ones most freed by our faith, most generous, the ones who are quickest to share. We have the opportunity to lead by example. Now, I wish the story ended right there and we moved on. The church just, just continued, but it doesn't. That's how chapter 4 ends, but Luke continues on in chapter 5. And so in verses 1 through 11, we get the contrasting response. We get the positive example first, and now the contrasting response. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the first of those who have buried—I'm sorry. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard those things. This, dear friends, is a sobering story. As encouraging and as exciting as the the preceding verses as we ended chapter 4 are inspiring, right? I want to be a part of that. We now get this contrast of a very somber, sobering, serious, challenging passage where, where someone responds completely different in their faith than what we saw in Barnabas. Now, if some of you are parents out there, I, I know this, this passage actually gets a little bit of a bad rap, I think, because I think we often use this with our kids when somebody lies. They go, hey, let me just, hey, you know, Acts chapter 5, let me just show you what happens. You lie, God will strike you dead, right? Let's be honest, who's used that passage before, right? At least thought it. And yes, lying is a bad thing, but I don't want us to miss, that was not the primary offense that we see here. Lying became kind of the cover-up. It, it was a heart that was faking faith, faith fakers, we see here in Ananias and Sapphira. They lied because they, they, had, to, they had to cover up. They had to, they had to keep the charade going on of who they really were. And yeah, the lie was bad, but it was their lack of integrity that was just as bad. The lie was the cover-up. On the outside, Ananias and Sapphira look just like their fellow church member, Barnabas, don't they? To the casual observer, they were doing the same thing, but deep in their heart lingered a love of money and a desire for people's praise. So they conspired together 
to present a portion of their money while passing it off as the entire amount. And this is worlds apart from what we see Barnabas doing, right? Barnabas, in his humility, sells a field, comes and throws the money at the feet of the disciples. Ananias and Sapphira, it's likely maybe that they saw that. Maybe they saw Barnabas do that and thought, wow, boy, he, boy, he got a lot of accolades. There was a lot of applause. Boy, did you see the way that people talked about Barnabas? Man, that was incredible. Oh, I want to be like that. I want people to look at me that way. Who hasn't thought that? As you've seen someone within the church, right? Do something. Oh, you know, I, I was talking to one of my children the other day, and recently she had been baptized, and she said, you know, I just, I just wish my story was better. Felt that before? I've been there. I was saved and blessed to be saved at a young age. I thought, why, why couldn't I have been a drug addict, right? Right? Why couldn't I have had a story of like, I was down in this, and Jesus saved me, and this transformation, and then, right? And I had to understand over time that I was just as bad as, as whatever I thought the story could be. My salvation was, was just as great. But you know what a lot of that is? Is I want a story. I want people to look at John Culver and think, wow. You know, the, the danger of even for any preacher in preparing a sermon, right, is to get focused on, boy, I hope people like what I have to say. I hope nobody's offended when they walk out and they like it and they think well of me. I, I, I fight that all the time as opposed to am I going to be faithful to what God's word says and am I willing, am I living in a way that I'm living it out first and foremost myself? I mean, that's a true, true conviction that I feel and challenge that I have and I know Phil has here and others that, that, that share and open the word of God. I have to be careful because the two, Barnabas and Ananias and Fire, on the surface looked very similar, didn't they? But one was freed by his faith, and one became a faith faker. Oh, what did that mean? What, what does that look like for us today? They were more in love with their stuff, weren't they? Yeah, they were willing to be generous up until a certain point. I don't know exactly what happened. They had a piece of land. They, they were selling it. I think they kind of had this idea, hey, let's sell this piece of land. And when we walk down that aisle, and we lay that money at the feet, the feet of the apostles, <laughs> this is what we're going to hear can't wait to hear that come on bring it on bring it on I can almost envision them walking in that day having done that they had this field they decide you know what sell for it they talk together they conspire together this wasn't one just one him hiding it from his wife conspire together they sell that property and they embezzle part of the proceeds it's as simple as that it was their property as Peter will say it was yours before you sold it you had you had control over it you could have done what you want with it but then they sold it and they lacked integrity that again it's not just the lie it was the lie to cover up their greed. It was the lie to cover up their desire to appear godly, to have the benefits of being in the, in the Christian culture and a part of a church, but not actually to be godly. So I think, I really do envision they're walking down, my, man, people are going to celebrate us just like Barnabas as they walk down and they lay that money at the feet of Jesus. And instead, something dramatically different happens, doesn't it, as we see in the story. Ananias doesn't even have time to say anything, does he? And right away, what does Peter say? He cuts right to the heart of the matter and makes it a spiritual issue. He says, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart and to lie? Why have you allowed Satan to be the one to cause you to lie to the Holy Spirit? Bam. Now, I don't know. Do you wonder a little bit how Peter knew? I was thinking about this. Like, how did Peter know? He didn't ask me, like, hey, Ananias, you know, is this, you know, he didn't have this process where everybody came in, hey, Barnabas, is that, was that the full price? Can you show me the deed for the land and the, and the receipt to make sure that you're giving us the same amount? But he knew. I don't know if he was, if he was some revelation of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if he saw something in Ananias. I don't know if it's because Ananias is looking around, kind of, you know, making sure people are checking me out and that I'm, I'm performing well. Look at me, look what I'm doing. 
Maybe he was tipped off. Even back in the early church there, I'm sure there were gossips, right? <laughs> Maybe somebody saw him or heard about it or their word got back to Peter. Hey, you're not going to believe this, but Ananias sold this property. He's telling everybody he's given all the money, but I know he sold it for 100 bucks, and he's only given 50. I, I don't know. It really doesn't matter, but Peter knew. And Peter called him out. And here's what's in it. He doesn't even give Ananias an opportunity to respond, does he? He's not at, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? It's not a, hey, Ananias, I, I kind of heard through the grapevine that you might have done something that wasn't right. I know you're trying to look like Barnabas, but you did something very differently. He cuts right to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? Right to it. And there's no response. And he, say, and he makes it a spiritual issue, and he makes it an issue against God. His sin, Ananias' sin, first and foremost was against whom? God. Holy Spirit, it was against God, not his fellow. Yes, secondarily, it was against the believers there because it impacted them as well, but it was against God. And what happens? Ananias drops dead immediately. And it says that they picked, up his, they picked him up and they carried him out, right? Why that's important is because back in that day, appropriate ceremonial barriers, burials was a big deal. So they knew that what had just happened was not a heart attack, Ananias hadn't just all of a sudden passed out of old age, kind of hit it, the shock of I've been caught and I died. They understood what? That it was a divine judgment. Divine judgment in that moment, he dies. He falls to the ground and is carried out. I mean, this is, this is, this is drastic. And the, unsurprisingly, we see then, what's the response of the people? There is great fear. Really? I feel like that's the understatement of the year, right? I read that and I'm like, oh, and there was great fear. Are you serious? Can you imagine the guys carrying him out? I'm carrying him out. I'm shaking. Like, I'm trying to get out of there going, do you believe what just happened? And I'm sure there was all kinds of, of remarks and whispering. Can you believe that? God struck him dead for what he did. This is a big deal. This is huge. And they understood it was more than just for a lie. It's bigger than that. Don't miss that. So what happens? A few hours later, three hours, who shows up? Wife. Now, so if we're looking back up for just a minute, you know what? Do you know what Ananias means? It means God is gracious. God is merciful. You know what Sapphira means? Beautiful. Anything gracious or beautiful about what's going on right now? <laughs> I don't miss the irony of that. God is gracious. Ananias and Sapphira were well aware that God was gracious and beautiful and what their names meant, and they knew what they were doing. Don't, don't be mistaken that this is something they fell into and out of confusion. They had been close to the transforming power of the gospel in that culture, in that church. They were seeing what was happening and what being demonstrated. They got close. They were without excuse, as we are today, in my opinion, with, with all that we know, the same acts of the Holy Spirit and God's word, and how easy it is to go from faith freed to faith faker. It's a fine line, isn't it? Fine line to get through. Three hours later, Sapphira shows up. Now, here's what's interesting to me, too. Nobody told her. Like, she didn't know. Like, I'm just trying to think of, you know, what happened. I mean, my first thought is, like, I'm running out going, can you believe, Sapphira, you can't believe this. Your husband died. Run for the hills. If something, if anybody asks, repent, right? I, I don't know why that didn't happen, but it didn't. And she walks in three hours later, I believe, probably in a similar, similar state of mind, thinking, oh, man, my husband's been there. He dropped off his money. We're going to be like Barnabas. People are going to think so well of us. It's going to be awesome. Our, our status level in the church is going to go from here to here. You know, we used to sit where, where Josh is sitting. They're going to have us sitting right up here. You know, right here. I, I'm being a little facetious, but we, we've been there. You know that. I'm going to post this on Facebook. I'm going to tweet this out. Property given. We're in. We're, in. We're helping. She comes in. Same thing. Peter. 
Peter, though, gives her an out, doesn't he? Gives her an opportunity. It's different. With Ananias, he just, bam, here it is. Rhetorical question, done. But Sapphira goes, hey, is, is this the full amount? Is this everything? I mean, this is what you paid for? What's her response? Yep. She had a moment. You know, I think back. Boy, you talk about regrets above regrets. <laughs> Boy, I wish I could rewind that tape a little bit and go back, right? Unknowingly says the same thing. What happens? Bam. Not a heart attack. Not I can't believe my husband's died and I can't go on without him. Divine judgment. Dead. Feet come in. Same feet that carried her husband. That was probably still trembling, right? Watching this again and again, the scriptures say, great fear came, across, came upon the believers and the others that were there. It's not just the believers, and we'll come back to that in a moment. It wasn't just the believers. It was all those who saw that. Their love of their money and their stuff was stronger than their love of Jesus and other people. They weren't obligated to give all that money. They could have, they could have handled it differently. They could have kept the land. There's other things they could have done, but their greed and their desire to, for the praise and the accolades and the adoration of others caused them to respond in a way that, that gave them divine judgment. So as I get ready to close in just a moment, get the takeaways, just a couple, let me compare and contrast that real quick. I've, I've mentioned some of these, but just to highlight them. Ananias and Sapphira loved their money more than they loved other people, right? They kept some of it back because they couldn't bear the thought of giving it all away. You know, I, I think part of it may have been Ananias is thinking, you know, I've got a wife, I've got a future, I have a retirement, I've got to be secure, right? Anybody else been there before? I, I, I want to share, I want to give some, but boy, I, I can't give till it hurts. Like, I've got to be careful. I've got, I've got a future to think about. Hey, I want to help out, but you know, I've got to take care of my kids. What about me? I've got to have a retirement. I've got to make sure that I, I live well and, and, and for every contingency, I've got to be prepared. They love their money. Barnabas, on the other hand, who did he love? Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was transformed. His faith provided freedom from his stuff, and he knew that his money would go to help a whole lot of other people. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to appear more generous than they were because they loved the praise of men more than they, more than they loved their integrity. You know, it's interesting that the, uh, I read somebody in studying for this that said, you know, often the praise of men and the love of money go together. They're tied together. I thought about that. I thought, well, that's right. When you want others to think well of you, money becomes very important. Status becomes very important. And for them, that was it. Don't miss. It wasn't just greed. Like, I got to hold on. It's mine. It was their perception, the perception that others would have of them. On the other hand, Barnabas, that's not what he was looking for, wasn't he? He didn't need the approval of others because he had the approval of God. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to cover up their greed. They lacked integrity. That's really the, the, the bigger issue there. They were hypocrites because of their deception and their fraudulent behavior. Barnabas, on the other hand, he didn't need to lie. He could be trusted. He had nothing to hide. He understood that his faith in Jesus Christ had freed him from worrying about his stuff. And he could be free to follow Jesus in that way. And became a huge example for the early church. And finally, Ananias and Sapphira, they discredited and disgraced the Holy Spirit. They lied to the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 3. They lied to God, it says in verse 4. And in verse 9, it says they tested the Lord. This was for, first and foremost, primarily, a sin against God, not the other believers. Although that was, there was an effect of that, this was a sin against God. Barnabas, as we contrast him, he didn't dishonor or grieve the Holy Spirit. He understood that the gospel freed him from his stuff, freed him from holding on tightly to the things that God had given him, 
and his stuff became God's stuff, and he was ready to share. How about you? How about us? How about me? I'm going to be honest. The, the studying in this passage this week has been pretty convicting to me because I tend to relate a whole lot more with Ananias than I do Barnabas. If I'm honest and I'm, I'm being authentic, I find my heart much more easily swayed that way to go, hey, I want to help, of course, as long as it doesn't hurt me. As it fits, as my bank account, you know, you know it's okay. I don't want to help a little bit, but not too much. I find myself being very tight with my stuff, very frugal. I would never say I'm in love with my stuff, but that's what it is. My heart's affections are much easily swayed that way. I said my wife and I are in the midst of a transition right now. We're watching our bank account go down a little bit, little bit faster than it used to at times, trusting in him, but, but also seeing him provide. And I tell you, it's been real easy to want to hold like this on stuff. My money, my giving, boy, the temptations in the hearts to go, you know, have I been freed by Jesus? Is it my stuff or God's stuff? Am I a caretaker of it or is it mine? All of a sudden, boy, the rubber meets the road on this. And I, I wrestle with this. My possession. Somebody, hey, I need, hey, can we come over and use your house for something? Borrow your car. You know, borrow this. Is there anywhere else you can find it? Like, if you can't find it anywhere else, let me know. And you, it's all I got, you know? But it wasn't just when I had little. It can be when I have a lot. But what I'm finding is generosity comes out not when you have a lot of stuff, when you have less stuff. You think be generous when you're just kind of skimming off the top. Imagine if our, church was, our churches were full of people that, that, that even just gave a, a minimum tithe. We would have more money than we knew what to do with. I think I remember one time the average giving of, a, of a, somebody who claimed to be, and again, this is a wide spectrum, right? Uh, giving was a couple percentage. You know, one, two, three percent. I can't imagine. I'm not, it's not a, I'm not trying to, I'm not going there today of saying this is about just give more to the church. I'm just saying it's being freed up to go, it's not my stuff anymore. It's also a call for us to be authentic with each other, to shepherd the flock well, to be involved in people's lives. Because remember, Barnabas and Ananias on the surface, they looked pretty similar, didn't they? Casual observer, they looked very similar. I'm going to look out on, on our congregation here today in my own life. I, I can look godly without being godly. A number of years ago, I heard a, uh, I don't know where, where I heard it from, but the phrase was esse quam videri. Maybe Latin, Greek, something, I can't remember, and it stood for to be rather than to appear. I want to be godly, not appear godly. I know how to appear godly. I know how to play the game. I want to be godly in my life. So that leads me to our applications today, and I'll close with these briefly. Three faith takeaways for the church today. We've looked at one, a snapshot of one transformed church and how God was using them, and, and plenty that we can learn from that. We looked at two contrasting responses by church members, same church, different responses and how they approached. One who was freed to be generous by his faith, freed from, from what others thought, and one who was bound, who was a faith faker, and felt like they had to, to, to lie and lack integrity in order to, to continue a charade. So three faith takeaways that I have, and I've already touched on these. The first one, genuine faith frees us from being fond of our stuff. Genuine faith. You want a litmus test for what it looks like? If you have genuine faith, you're, you're going to be a lot less fond of your stuff and a lot more fond of Jesus and the work of the gospel and the ministries around us and the people that we come in contact with. Does that make sense? You know, when I was thinking about counterfeit stuff, I remember hearing at one point when, they, when they're trying to find counterfeit money, they don't spend a lot of time looking at counterfeit money. You know what they look at? The real thing. It always struck me. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense, right? They're going to be so convinced of what the real thing looks like when they see something that's counterfeit, it's very easy to discern that. 
And I believe the same can be true for us today and what we see in the past. When we get close to who Jesus is and we see what a transformed culture and faith and body of believers looks like, we can start to see the counterfeit items. And one of those for us today is if you start finding your heart being more, more enamored and drawn to your stuff. There's nothing wrong with stuff, right? There were people back in the church that had stuff. Praise God for people that have stuff and money and wealth that they can give generously of it. I am a byproduct of people's wealth that have blessed me and benefited me. Our churches are as well. Don't hear that. Don't walk away hearing that. That stuff is bad. But I want to be less fond of my stuff and more fond of those. I remember friends of ours back in the church I used to serve with, uh, they would always say, oh, it's God's, it's God's car. It's God's house. It's God's money. You know, and they responded. And I always thought, well, if that's true, why don't you give it to me? Like, I'll take it. I could use it. It's God's. Like, why don't we share? Like, I'll take it. But they lived it out. They lived it out like their stuff wasn't theirs. God blessed them. They used it. Man, it's, that's attractive, isn't it? It's so attractive to see someone who's so generous because the condition of their heart has been transformed. Secondly, the fear of God is a fundamental part of our faith. Verse 5 and verse 11 both say that the church, those that were there, great fear spread. Absolutely. Unsurprisingly, there was great fear among the believers and non-believers after watching Ananias and Sapphira drop dead because of their deceit. But as we'll see next week in, in uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 14, more and more people believed in the Lord. But it wasn't fear that drove people away. It was a fear that, that they recognized that I need to be in awe, reverent awe to a holy God. I wonder at times now in our culture if we've become too casual in approach to God. He's just my buddy. He's my boy. He's my friend, right? God loves me. We've overemphasized his love and underemphasized his wrath, his justice, his righteousness. Both are equally important. We cannot appreciate how incredible his love is if we don't understand what we have been saved from. I relate it back to my dad. Godly dad, when I was young growing up, I was in awe of my dad. I feared my dad at times, right? And I can think of some moments that I feared him more than others. But I was not afraid that my dad was going to hurt me. I was in awe of him. I had reverence towards him. I loved him. I knew he had my best interest in, at heart and in mind, and that he would take care of me. And that caused me to want to please him, to want to serve him, to want to honor him. That's our approach to our Heavenly Father, in awe, intimate relationship, but with awe, never getting too casual. God uses fear, and he used fear then to spread the church when we understand that it's a God who desires us to be in relationship. And finally, Faith faking is a fatally serious matter to God. And hopefully you've, you've caught on to that by now, all right? Faith faking is a fatally serious sin to God. You know what? Sin in general is a big deal, and it's serious to God. The older I get, the closer I, I'm attempting to try to get to Jesus, the more serious I'm taking my own sin. I'm less cavalier than I used to be. Still more than I should be, but less cavalier than I I'm realizing the impact of my sin, that I have a healthy fear of God and his judgment, and also a desire to be as close to him. I want to get as far away from that line and as close to Jesus as I can. But Luke reminds us that faith faking, we better be aware of this. This is a big deal. If we're honest, the story makes us a little bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? I remember reading one author as I was studying for this that said, you know, we, we often question, like, why, why, did God, you know, why did God kill them? Why did God judge them in that way? When really the question is, why does he let us live? Because of his grace. The anecdote to all of this, the antidote to faith, faith faking is to be freed by our faith. The antidote is to understand that we have been, we are, we are immersed in God's unbelievable, amazing grace. 
It's grace that frees us to have both an external and an internal witness, to both love those within our church and to care for those outside of our church. And so, friends, as I close today, be encouraged that God wants to use us and he wants to free us and that we do not have to be bound by our love of stuff, bound by our possessions, bound by our ability or desire to be in a certain status in our culture and even in our church, but rather that he offers the same grace that's, that's, that's available, that was available to the early church. He offers it to us today, and we can drink deeply of that. Not abuse it, not cheapen it by thinking, how close can I get to sin or how much can I do without getting in trouble, but to say, I want to be as far away from it and as close to Jesus as I can be. Would you pray? Uh, Jesus, as I finish today, I, I know I, I you know, lot, covered a lot of ground today, and a lot of things said, and I pray or that your spirit will convince us today of, of what's most important, of what's mo most meaningful, that we have a desire to be freed by our faith, not to be faith fakers. God, that's the desire of my heart. I don't want to be a faker. I want to be free, and I want to be able to embrace your love and your grace. And I pray that it's your spirit that fills us today, that we would be a church, a body, and a people that is filled with your spirit and freed to love those around us, to give freely and to be generous. In Jesus' name I pray.